I'm an introverted analytical linguist. I admit that I'm a lot more comfortable holding up in my office, analyzing a language, picking it apart. I could do it all day long. But that day in the Gumu's village, I pushed back my desk chair to answer a knock at the door. It was Wohis, one of my Gumu's language helpers. Yigurta, he said, but I can't come to work today. My great aunt has died. I must go to the funeral. So I said, let's go. I jumped up and I followed him out the door. I spent the whole day at the funeral, which was long and tedious and honestly hard for me to get through. It would have been so much easier if I just stayed at my desk, but it was real life language learning. I was becoming a part of the community. Hi everyone and welcome to Language on Purpose. I'm Marilyn Kindberg and that was Travis Williamson. He talks personally today about that tension language learners can feel between sitting and studying versus going out to experience language in a real community context. Travis completed a scripture translation with the Gumus in Ethiopia and now teaches applied linguistics at Moody Bible Institute. Travis, welcome to Language on Purpose. Thank you, Mary Lynn. I'm happy to be here today. Gumus is a pretty large minority language in Ethiopia. Is a minority language much harder to learn or is that just a common misperception? I think there's actually some truth to that. When ethnic groups come together, they often develop a language of wider communication. And in some sense, every new generation can have a tendency to water down that language in its complexity. That happened in English and is a common feature among pigeons and creoles around the world. Whereas minority languages tend to be more isolated from such contact, therefore they can preserve an incredible amount of complexity. They can have very complex verbal systems or case markings. I don't know if you want to call it harder, I'd call it a lot more fun. Spoken like a true linguist, Travis. Verb systems, case systems, that's the kind of stuff you must have loved analyzing in Gumus. And how about those wicked phonological contrasts for consonants? Just for fun, could you let us hear some adjectives and implosives? I think they're kind of cool. Sure. Gumus had some really fun consonants, such as you mentioned, adjectives and implosives. Implosives, for example, would be like the word for moon is bija, bi, bi, bija as opposed to the word for stars is bija, b, a very normal b, bija, as opposed to bija, b, is the word for moon. Another word uh, for ejectives, we have the word peppa, peppa, just peppa, normal p's, but you can ejectivize those or glottalize them, and it sounds like peppa. Peppa, with the normal p's, is the word for arrow, like a bow and arrow that you'd shoot, but peppa is the word for wing that a bird would have. Um, so, other examples would be like date. Date means to get lost. You got lost in the woods as opposed to date. Te, te, with an ejective T means to be afraid of something. So whether you make a normal T, a normal K versus an ejective uh, versus implosives, it can make the difference of meaning of words all over the language. Were they hard for you to particularly master? I would say not really. One of the benefits of having studied phonetics in my courses is that I know the mechanics of all that's supposed to happen in the vocal track in order to produce these non-English sounds. But that's only half the battle. The other half is getting the muscles inside of your vocal track to make it happen. In this case, practice makes perfect. And when you speak a language, or you're trying to speak a language that uses particular sound, you get plenty of practice over the long haul. So it may be like muscle memory or something for an athlete. Exactly, yeah. We first worked in Quechua in Peru, and it had those 
objectives to at the beginning, I think I actually closed my eyes to get that puff of air, like, up, 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 up. and I loved all those fancy declensions of case endings when I took Latin, except, well, except for memorizing them for an exam. But then again, I never had to master them to speak a language. Well, Spanish actually does have a few, but my hat's off to you, Travis, having learned a rather complicated gubus. Thanks. But with good linguistic training, it isn't terribly difficult to break down the basics of another language and thus know a lot about gumus, but it doesn't automatically translate into being a good communicator in gumus. In many ways, being analytically minded is both a gifting and a curse. How so? What do you mean by that? Well, for one, I saw how being analytical helped me during learning Amharic, the national language of Ethiopia. The language school we attended emphasized only a comprehension-led approach, but my wife and I would analyze things sort of on the side, and then we'd talk with our teachers about it. I think that the ability to analyze gives us adults an advantage over how children learn. Analysis can be helpful in the sense that you're able to catch yourself when you're saying something incorrect. The downside is that you're causing your mind to be thinking about the language analytically instead of using the language as language. If I tried to break down everything I heard or attempted to produce, the actual process of communication is unhelpfully bogged down. And over time, if you devote more time to analysis and less on comprehending and producing speech, then your mind gets conditioned in the direction of analysis. And if you're trying to develop proficiency in communication, analysis is a totally different track to be on. I think we sort of have to push against our natural default whether we're more of an analytical learner like yourself or a relational learner. I think I'm somewhere in between. We have to keep them in tandem and not go to either extreme, don't you think? Yeah. Those of us who default on one side or the other will find ourselves strong on one of those tracks. And without intentional effort, we'll be weaker on the other side. As I was saying, there are two parallel tracks by which we can pursue language acquisition. Analytical approaches are an attempt to understand the internal structure of that language, whereby relational approaches strengthens one's ability to use the language for communication. Relational learners run the risk of what is affectionately called the blurt and prey method. They're so hungry for communication and relationships that they'll just blurt something out and hope for the best without taking the time for studying and preparation that's needed for accuracy. I've seen relational learners go astray by making too many friends in the expat community or with nationals who can speak English. Let me just add one more quick comment here, please, Travis. I think a focus on analysis can lead to what I call the trap of rule-based learning. I think language schools can easily pull us into rules with an overemphasis on grammar. Here's an example of how we can kind of sidestep rules to focus on communication. Studying Spanish in Costa Rica, early on I learned this chorus at church that said, if it hadn't have been for him, I wouldn't have been redeemed. That's a classic use of one of the subjunctive tenses in Spanish, which is something you usually don't get to until months in, and actually there are whole courses on the subjunctive. I had no idea what the rule was, which subjunctive tense it was, or why you would even use the subjunctive. But instead of worrying about 
all the grammatical stuff of the subjunctive. I just grabbed onto the pattern and ran with it to communicate in other situations. I was able to use it in other contexts, like if it hadn't have been for watching TV shows, I wouldn't have learned so much vocabulary. Well, actually, it could have been the opposite. That was true, but whatever. So communication-based learning versus rule-based learning. But back to having that community mindset of building relationships through language in order to integrate into a community. Studies have shown that it's much easier to move into a community and start developing those relationships if you have a bit of the language already under your belt. Maybe that's obvious, but did you learn any of the language before you actually went out to live in the Gumus community? Yeah, we did. After nine months of language school, we were waiting in Addis Ababa, the capital of Ethiopia, for our firstborn child to be born. There wasn't a Gumus neighborhood or community in the capital city, uh, but we were able to find a couple of speakers through some of our friends uh, from another agency who were living in the Gumus area doing medical work. They brought in a Gumus woman who needed a fistula repaired since there was a large fistula clinic in Addis Ababa. After her surgery, she stayed in the clinic for two or three weeks to recover. So we went to visit her, hoping that we could start to learn a little bit of Gumus. She was entirely monolingual. At the beginning, she was very afraid of me. She wouldn't even make eye contact. Anytime I said anything to her, she just wouldn't engage. So eventually I said to my wife, who was very pregnant at the time, just go on a walk with her and don't come back until she's talking. So they were gone like a half hour, or 45 minutes. Finally, they came back with her feeling a lot more comfortable. Over the course of several meetings, she began to relax. And once she sort of figured out what we were trying to do, she began to really look forward to our meetings. We tried to get some basic words, but it was just more exposure to hear the sounds of gumus and things like that. Did you meet with anybody else? Yes, there was a little gumus boy with a cleft palate whom our friends had brought into the American hospital where they specialized in repairing cleft palates and cleft lips. The boy came with his uncle, who was probably in his 20s, and from a Muslim background. While the boy was recovering from his surgery, we got to hang out with the uncle several times, and we started to go through an illustrated dictionary, which had been published in both Amharic and English. The pictures weren't drawn all that great, and a lot of things were totally irrelevant for their culture. I know you mentioned a few funny examples. Yeah, like for example, there was a whole page on trench coats and galoshes and then dress clothes like bow ties and slacks and then silverware that they don't even know what they are in Ethiopia. But the fruit pages and the insects and the trees, all those were really uh, gold mines for learning language. Speaking of picture dictionaries, let me just jump in here and mention one of the classic go-to resources in language learning called the Lexicary by Patrick Moran. I'll put that up on our Instagram account, language on purpose, but back to the uncle. The uncle was just sitting around the hospital all day, so he loved us coming in. I look back on those notes I wrote in the dictionary, and they're pretty rough, but it was a good start. At the end, I played for him a recording of the prodigal son story in Gumus that had been recorded before I got there. Since he was a Muslim, it kind of sparked his curiosity, and later some of our colleagues in his area were able to share the good news with him. It's pretty exciting how it all ended. Travis, that's a great example of how language learning can be ministry, but as well, it shows a really good pre-emergent strategy. What about language helpers out in the community? 
Did you have others besides Wohees that you mentioned? There were others, yes. My wife and I moved out to the Gumuz village when our son was two months old and we got some help hiring language helpers. We wanted to have some people come to the house on various days. So what we decided was we would have three people taking turns coming to our house each two days a week. So it'd be one guy on Monday and Thursday, and then another guy on Tuesday and Friday, and then another Wednesday and Saturday guy. So six days of the week, we had mornings basically from eight till noon. Each of the language helpers had their strengths and weaknesses. Well, he's who I mentioned earlier was my Tuesday, Friday guy. He wasn't so good at staying engaged or even awake during our sessions. And as we sat at the desk for long hours. So I recognized that he's a guy that needed to go out. We went on walks. We'd go harvest peanuts. He'd take me to his house, introduce me to all of his friends, show me all the different kind of cooking utensils, etc., etc. We tried to take advantage of real life events to make the language come alive in real context out in the community, as opposed to just working down vocabulary lists. So one day there was a big rainstorm. All the water in the compound was collected into the rainwater collection tanks. There was one day when the 10,000 liter tank exploded in the night. And so we took that opportunity to collect real language data. I first tried to explain what happened in Amharic and then said, now you tell it back to me in Gumus. And I ended up getting a very natural text describing the events that had occurred. On a different note, Travis, I know minority ethnic groups can have very low status. Was that true with the Gumus? And were they ever reluctant because of that to speak their language with you? That may have been true with one of my language helpers who at times seemed to prefer giving me the Amharic word for something as opposed to the Gumu's word. And as far as the people as a whole, you're right. They did feel a very inferior status to the rest of the society. They had been told that they speak like chirping birds. But by learning Gumu's, I was entering into that identity and sharing that hurt in the way they feel. When it became very clear that I definitely wanted to learn their language, I was welcomed into their hearts. The language you speak is your identity. So I became known as Mpugumus, or the White Gumus, as many people referred to me. Your story about your Canadian intern also speaks about language and identity. So could you tell us that story? So one of the interns we hosted arrived from Canada on a Sunday morning. He made it through that first day with lots of coffee. And then first thing Monday morning, he joined me and the Gumus translators in the consultant office where we were working together on finalizing the translation of the book of Luke. So he's in this room with Amharic and Gumus bouncing off the walls all day. Mind you, he'd never heard any of these languages. But there he was writing things down, making hypotheses, and taking every opportunity during our tea breaks and over lunch to elicit more words and meaning despite the translators having very low proficiency in English. He was just peppering the guys with questions and charades, just like a linguist who couldn't help himself. The next day, I approached one of the translators. So, what do you think of Matthew? He's going to be with us all summer. Is he going to make it? And the translator said, Ah, Mateos. Achamadu gumuzatso. He's a son of a gumuz. Now, wait a minute, I objected. How can you call him a son of a gumus? He's fresh off the plane. He's never eaten any of your food. He's never been to your house or drank your homemade kea with you. How could you call him a son of a gumus when he's much more of an outsider than I am? The translator answered me, well, he's already a son of a gumus because he's trying to learn my language. That's a great story to end on, Travis. Thank you. But Please say yes. You have a super duper language blooper you're willing to share with us. 
of course, don't we all have language bloopers? The blooper I'm thinking of happened when I was just starting to learn about the language. I was just starting to conjugate verbs and had noticed that one of my language helpers was conjugating the first person plural we or us differently from my other helpers. One was using a form of the pronoun aqua and the other two were using a form of the pronoun Isla. When I pressed them for the difference between the two, none of them could differentiate them, rather saying, oh, it doesn't matter which one you use. They both mean the same, we. At such an early stage in language learning, I had much bigger fish to fry. I was confused on many other points, and so we moved on. Then one day, I went down to the well where we pumped our drinking water. I had about 10 jerry cans in my truck, about 20 liters each, and I needed to fill them up. So I had begun pumping away when a whole herd of little Gumu's boys came running down the hill and promptly took over the job of pumping my water. When I had placed the final jerry can into the back of my truck, I looked at the boys wanting to offer them a ride back up the hill in my truck. At the time, all I knew how to say was, Ayla Mitzilil Karbia. We go truck. So I said it, Ayla Mitzilil Karbia. Silence. They are all just staring at me with blank expressions. So I tried again, Isla Mitzil Karbia. Still nothing. You would think they would be really excited about going in a foreigner's truck, right? So what's going on here? Finally, I physically had to pick up one of the boys by the shoulders and place him in the truck, at which point they all yelled, yay, and they scrambled into the truck. And I'm just like, man, what happened? I thought I was getting this language down. I know what it means to say, we go truck. I couldn't figure out why they didn't just jump in at my invitation. The next morning, I was glad to see Haptamu, another one of my language helpers, come to my door for our, our morning session. He was the most analytical of all of my helpers. I said, all right, I have a story. Here's what happened. Here's what I said. Why didn't they jump into the truck the first time I said it? I don't get it. He said, well, you used the Isla form of the verb when you should have used the aqua form of the verb. And I said, but wait, I thought you said they were both the same and it didn't matter which one I used. Well, he said, Isla, when you use Isla, you're talking about you and your people, excluding the ones who you're speaking to, who are going to be traveling up the hill in the truck. If you had said aqua, or the aqua form of the verb, you would have been including them into your first person plural, thus being an invitation. And all of a sudden, my linguistic training came back. Of course, the inclusive we includes the people you're talking to, whereas the exclusive we, in this case, Isla, excludes them. So when I used the exclusive pronoun Isla, they must have thought that I meant me and my imaginary friends or my jerry cans or something. I was obviously out there all by myself, so they probably thought I was absolutely crazy or hallucinating or something. It's a good reminder to me that you don't really learn the language until you're actually out there using it and thus learning from your mistakes. Thanks so much, Travis, for telling us that in true humility and for being on the show today. I'm Mary Lynn Kinderberg, and thanks so much for joining us here on Language on Purpose. Follow us now on Instagram, Language on Purpose. That's where we'll put up any resources we mentioned, and please send us some funny memes. Find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google. If you connected with the podcast, be so good as to leave us a nice review. And on our webpage, languageonpurpose.org, if you complete the very short survey, I can better serve you. Subscribe anywhere you listen and you won't miss an episode. See you next time.